Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is every student matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. Dr. Shelley Davido is a lecturer in curriculum and pedagogy at the University of the Sunshine Coast and is an international author and educator. For the past 20 years, she has written and taught in various settings around the world and is an advocate for social justice and the mitigating effects of stress on children, both at home and in the classroom. Dr. Davido's research into the physical effects of stress and anxiety on the body, particularly the nervous system, is truly fascinating, and her books include the recently released Raising Stress-Proof Kids. Dr. Shelley Davido, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Tracy. Shelley, you wrote the book Raising Stress-Proof Kids. Can you tell us why did you write the book? Yeah, well, the book is a result of probably 20 years in the classroom and I increasingly started to see behaviours and dispositions in kids that really seem to be the result of overactive nervous system activity is the way I can put it, just stressful reactions to all kinds of things, even little things. And um, for my master's degree I did some research with the Institute of Heart Math which looked at the impact of how environments actually do um, either make kids overactively stressed or make them you know relaxed and so out of the combination of my research but also what I was seeing in the classroom I gathered that all together and it took me a couple of years to create a book that was user-friendly that parents might perhaps find helpful. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and what you've conducted over the years? So thank you for that question. Yeah, that's very, it's quite complex. But the main research that I did was with the Institute of Heart Math in California. And they, their, their motto is decoding the intelligence of the heart. They're a bunch of neurocardiologists. And the research we did was we recorded the heart rhythms of about 200 students in different educational environments and we looked at how they responded to their environment. So whether they were having a stressful response to their environment or not, and then we crunched all that data together. And uh, the result is that some environments are worse for you than others. <laughs> it's not rocket science, but some environments definitely create a more stressed out person than others. And so that's, that's pretty uh, important in terms of the impact on our long-term health and our children's health. Uh, both emotional and physical and actually cognitive. Well we'll get to those types of environments shortly and uh, some of those triggers but let's start with what types of stress do children and teens experience? It's interesting that types of stress because our bodies actually respond to all different situations in the same way. We haven't evolved much in the last 100,000 years. So what used to stress us was, you know, maybe a lion trying to eat us and that was a stressor. And that's why it's so 
our stress response is so valuable because in that sense we would you know our heart rates would increase and we'd run away from the lion and maybe we'd escape and that would be fantastic but these days the things that stress us and the children in our classrooms and in our families are are sometimes an upcoming exam or peer pressure or um, a parental expectations where a child feels not understood or teacher expectations all of those things have now become the lions that uh, that are chasing us and our bodies are responding to that in the same way that they might have previously responded to being chased by a lion so, so tell us how does the body respond and how does stress affect overall well-being that's a great question our bodies are affected by stress in this way so bear with me for a second if you see the lion suddenly you get a terrible fright your heart rate accelerates immensely and that's a very wise response to seeing a lion what it does is it sends blood away from your brain to your limbs so that you can outrun the lion it also mobilizes glucose it floods your body with stress hormones or with cortisol and um, also any system that is not needed for the running away so for example sexual function you don't need that immune system you don't need that you don't need to be looking after that that's what happens during your what they call fight or flight and so that's brilliant and you get away from the lion and then the minute you've escaped suddenly what kicks in euphoria your heart rate slows down Cortisol is re re it's, um, replaced by endorphins because suddenly you're not eaten, so that's awesome. <laughs> and, um, and then your, your um, hormones optimize, blood flows back to the brain, you're no longer pale, and you go home to your family because you remain uneaten and you can have live to see another day. So that's great. And that, what we that is what we call the autonomic nervous system or the fight or flight and that system works very wisely when we are out running physical danger and then getting away from it and then relaxing. But what happens nowadays is that, you know, children especially might get into a stressed state about anything. You, you can be, you, you can watch children and you see what stresses them and you think, oh, that's just silly. But for them, they are having a full bodied reaction as if it were a lion. If you say to a child who struggles with spelling, spelling test on Monday, you might see the blood flowing away from the brain, the face going pale. You might see that kid starting to not think clearly anymore, starting to get reactive. That is the same response as the lion. And what happens to our children then these days is there isn't a safe place to go where the lions don't get you anymore very often. And so that um, fight or flight becomes kind of jammed. You are jammed into that way of being. You never get to a safe haven where you go, Phew, I'm not going to get eaten today. I'm good. And so the body was designed for short-term fight or flight, but not for chronic long-term fight or flight. And so when that happens, everything starts to break down. In fact, stress is the precursor to every single thing that goes wrong with our bodies. And so it's really in our interest as uh, parents and teachers to minimize stress for our children because our bodies are not very different to how they were 100,000 years ago, but the actual stressors have changed. When you talk about chronic stress, yeah. would you say that today's children and teens are experiencing greater stress than 
in the past yes. and what are those stresses, those triggers that we aren't yeah. necessarily aware of? Well, we are definitely in a much more stressful environment, which is interesting because we actually live, according to Steven Pinker, who's a neurolinguist in New York, in the most, in the safest times that we've ever lived in before. Despite all the stuff that you see on the media, we are less likely to be killed by another human being than we've ever been uh, since research began. But the effects of stress are largely media-induced and because we see all these terrible things happening, we develop, especially our kids, might develop fearful world syndrome, which is that everything's out to get you. I don't know if you've seen some of these YouTube clips where you know some three-year-old boy is crying about the environment and how you know these animals are being killed and he's he's got way too much information for his little three-year-old body to process and so it's a huge stressor for him so he's exposed to something now that he would never be exposed to or wouldn't have been exposed to say 50 years ago and so our kids are now in a digital 24-7 world where media and news and everything is coming in at such a rate that we can't even process that and our kids even less can process that. And there's demands, you know, once kids are on social media, it's like you've got to update your Facebook profile, you've got to, you know, you've got to be seen to be looking good. There are so many stresses coming at us through our screens and then through the behavior, the expectations we now have at school, more and more um, performance-based, outcomes-based, so in my book, Raising Stress-Proof Kids, I'm talking about our society, our westernized society. We are kind of goading and pushing our children towards an imaginary finish line, which doesn't even exist. We're like, oh, you've got to get this and you've got to get this. And it comes from a good place. We want our children to survive. It's the survival mechanism. We want them to succeed so that they can survive. But I think we have, we're lost and we've kind of gotten hijacked and so now our kids are on this what I would call stress freeway and um, and I saw the fallout in my classrooms you know kids just freaking out over little things or behavior just suddenly erupting and um, and all of those behaviors are the actions of someone who's fight or flight whose nervous system is out of out of whack they can't get out of that the lines after me is, is there also a freeze response? Yes, there is a freeze response. There's a freeze and a fawn response. It's, it, it really it depends so much on the person, but what it is, is it's, the, it's that um, sympathetic nervous system which is responsible for escape, doing whatever your personality needs it to do. Like some animals play dead. They just lie down and they freeze. You know, some of us are animals like that, you know, scare me and I'm going to freeze or scare me and I'm going to roll over and pretend to be incredibly, um, I'm going to fawn. I'm just going to be like, I'm just nice. Don't hurt me. <laughs> okay. So you've identified that it's a problem yes. and you've made that interesting link between heart function and a child's developing nervous system. So let's get to the solutions. What do parents yeah. need to do? to raise a stress-proof child where possible? That's a great question. That's the question that I'd love to answer. Mm -hmm. um, for, at first, I would say, do not overreact to children's behavior. And by overreact, I mean from the littlest thing. When your kid knocks something off the table, don't go, oh my gosh, what have you done? Or you're such an idiot. Or uh, 
all these reactions, the way we, the words we say, the tone of our voice, no, don't do that, get off there, you're going to fall, stop running, all of that, we're alarming them and we are either going to make them incredibly over-anxious or we're going to make them numb so that when a true possible danger is out there and we need to go, stop it, don't do that, they're like, yeah, you always say that. So I would say for parents to really be very mindful of just kind of having a knee-jerk reaction to behavior, shouting, yelling, um, being reactive to any situation, to tone that down. And then for the next level of, um, of care, I would say is to, in our minds, we need to get off that idea, get off that stress freeway idea that we somehow have to rush our children towards this imaginary finish line and that, you know, expel the results of their report are, are going to make or break them. It, it won't actually at all. In fact, I think Harvard did some research recently where they showed that the world's millionaires, billionaires these days, there's no correlation between how good they were in college and how rich they are today. So if you want your kid to be rich, it seems like you know the, the general rule is it's got nothing to do with what you did at school. What you did at school and university means that you were good at school and university. It doesn't mean you will be rich, it doesn't mean you will be happy, and it doesn't mean you will be healthy and live a long time. And so it turns out if, you st if we stop stressing our kids, and as teachers as well, we are under enormous pressure to help our kids succeed, and we're focused on outcomes, as if, as if our lives are all to do with the outcome. You, you know, we don't, we don't arrive on our death day and somebody goes, oh, well, that was a success, or that was a failure. Our lives are this journey, and I think what, we've, what we need to get out of um, seeing is our children's lives at school, that's not preparation for some big event. That is life for them. That's their lives. So how are we going to make that day rich, wonderful, not focused on a goal or an outcome, but on the process? And so in a very broad sense, I think it's going to take a colossal shift for us as parents and teachers. It's just a position. It's really not so much behavior, but how our position, how we position ourselves and what we expect from our kids, which is really, I think, the root of so much of the stress that they go through and that we put ourselves through. So I don't know if that... It is a competitive world out there, yeah. though, let's face it. And, and um, yes. getting a, a good OP or a good tertiary entrance rank is is important so we do need to encourage academic performance but yes. how do we do that and not create stressful children well here's the thing your cognitive performance improves vastly when you're not stressed so stress and learning they don't go together so if you know if you <laughs> if you are one of those parents or teachers who says you know you're going to end up you know flipping burgers if you don't you know put your mind to it today um, that stress and anyway what's wrong with flipping burgers you know somebody wants to flip the burgers or needs to that sort of stress does not help cognitive performance so in the research that I've done those kids who spend 10 minutes a day doing something like deep and even breathing or mindfulness improve their test scores enormously the competitive world is not about stressing everyone to the finish line it's about optimum environments that enable cognitive performance to be at its peak. 
So I think that's really where I'm very passionate about educational environments being places of joy and learning and learning for its own sake, not for an exam, but because you are genuinely interested and you are not stressed about it. You're not doing it for an exam, you're doing it because it's totally fascinating. And so that is what I would say, that's also a shift that I think is worth making that we do want academic performance and we do want the new innovators and the new thinkers, but that doesn't come with the whip and the carrot. It comes with the engagement and it comes with um, bringing the world to the kids so that they can be completely interested, which they really are. Children are naturally interested in their world and then we kind of destroy it and hijack it and say, now you've got to you know, keep a log of how many books you read and so someone who loves reading might think, oh no, now I have to make a log, not saying that you don't do that, but if you see what I mean, how, how hijacked we can be, because we think academic performance means, you know, um, pushing, pushing and pushing, and maybe it doesn't. Those studies that I referred to, if anyone is interested, are called the test edge studies, and there you can see how thousands of students over the years have improved their test scores by nothing other than spending about 10 minutes a day in a state of what the Institute of Heart Math calls high coherence. So no extra study, nothing. This was in America and test scores went up exponentially over time. With year 11 and 12 students, especially year 12 students, yes. they are under the most enormous pressure yeah. in terms of academic performance. What practical strategies can you give the parents and teachers of year 12 students to help in this way? Yeah. So maybe this is unconventional advice. Tell them that what they get for their results is not going to define them for life. Tell them the sun will still come up the next morning no matter what their results are. Tell them to go home and breathe and have some time with their friends. Tell them that the best they can do is the best they can do and that is enough. Your best is enough. You can't do more than that. And that it is not by any means a life or death issue. So um, I think to take that pressure off what I call finish line syndrome, which can be, it, it creates stress for all of us when my students were in year 12 and they would say, I'm so stressed, what do I need to do for this exam? You know, can you just give me some tips? That's exactly what I would say to them. I'd say, well, you know, learn, learn like you normally learn, do your reading, do your homework, get everything done, and then go and see a friend. If you're really getting overwhelmed, go and drink some chamomile tea and don't think that this is gonna be the moment that makes you or breaks you. Because by the time 10 years have passed, you won't even remember what you got for this exam. So a big perspective, that would be my advice, to really take a different position on what this means for you right now. Shelley, you mentioned that breathing techniques and various other techniques can really help with anxiety. Can you just um, take us through one of the practical techniques that people can use? Sure. This is called the quick coherence technique and it's from the Institute of Heart Math, and it will get you out of a panic attack or a stressed out situation quite quickly. And it's very simple. You just breathe in for a count of six or seven, and then out for a count of seven or eight, and you maintain that for about two minutes. And as you do it, you think of something that fills you with gratitude, because gratitude as an emotion is the most powerful shifter of your hormones. So it has a massive impact in your whole physiology. 
If you do that for 10 minutes a day, you can reduce your risk of heart disease by about 90%. But not only that, you can also, if you're a kid, you can improve your test scores. So getting into that state of high coherence is very simple. You just have to remember to do it. So in for six, out for seven, do it for two minutes, breathe an image, something that you, makes you feel grateful or full of love, and, um, and just try and sustain that for a couple of minutes. I've brought children out of panic attacks like that, brought myself out of panic attacks like that. So it is a very useful and very, very simple tool to add to your toolbox. How does it work on a physiological level? What, how does it transform the hormone emotion? It, it forces your nervous system to be in balance. So it forces the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, which act sort of like the accelerator and the brakes, to start working. When you regulate breathing, you regulate your heart rhythms, and that starts to, it's, it starts to um, allow the body to not be firing off all the stress hormones because now it's even, it's regular, Gratitude is a fantastic um, antidote for fear. Love is the opposite of fear. You cannot be in a state of high coherence and be freaking out. So that actually, it's, it's a manual. It's like t putting your car into manual and it's like, right, I'm just gonna put on the brakes now, make sure that they work. And as you force yourself into that state, even if you can't think of something beautiful, doesn't matter. If you just start regulating your breathing, you're forcing your nervous system into balance again. If there's a particular stressor that just keeps repeating on the brain, you know, whether it's that exam coming or yeah. what that person said to me or something that is um, just a monkey on your back, yeah. can this technique work? Absolutely. And the idea would be to just put everything out of your mind and just count because the counting is what I've found helps kids that helps them if you're just counting one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or a little bit slower than that. that. That enables your mind to let go of those monkeys just for a while. And over time, then those monkeys stop being so powerful. They can't get in there because you're just going to count them away and you're going to breathe them away. So that's really so helpful. So this technique may need to be done numerous times throughout the day. Yeah, I do. Every time I'm going to go to a meeting, or if I see, oh, oh, that parent is coming to talk to me, if I used to see that, um, I would just go, right, time for a quick coherence moment. And then, you know, and then you respond with equanimity to everything because you are balanced. Because when you do that, you balance your physiology, so you get your heart rate in an ordered pattern, which then balances your emotions, which then allows you to think clearly and not to overreact to whatever situation is coming. The more you do that naturally, the more, the more you do that on purpose, the more time you will spend in that state naturally as your baseline. So it really is, it's exponential, the benefit. I'm talking to Dr. Shelley Davido. Um, Shelley, what I find fascinating about your research is this link to stressors and the sympathetic nervous system and the nervous system in general. Can you tell us what does an overactive sympath sympathetic nervous system look like and actually do to a child and how can that affect them negatively in the long term? Okay, good question. So what it does to a child is what you would see in the classroom is a child who is having an almost overload experience. They are acting out, they might be hitting someone, they might be punching someone, they might be shouting, they might be crying. All of that 
is when the nervous system is no longer in balance. You, you're not able to switch off that stress response. So when you talk about anxiety, anxiety means fear. Fear is fight or flight. It's the same thing. Anxiety is a fear response to a situation that has become chronic. So kids who suffer from anxiety, in my experience, are kids who sometimes it's severe anxiety and, you know, and then they really can't even be in a classroom anymore. Or sometimes it's just acting out or acting out at home. And that means having a temper tantrum, having a, having a go at your little brother you know, on an ongoing basis, having a stressful reaction to you as a parent or as a teacher, which might mean shouting. All of that is when your fight or flight is engaged. So you want to either fight with someone or run away from them. So you need to either have your parent take you home if you're at school or you need to beat up the kid who's next to you. That's what it looks like. And, and what happens is when kids get into a state where they can't get out of that, that's when they start to lash out or, or break down. So that's kind of what I was seeing in the classroom. And especially in high school, when kids are under an enormous amount of pressure, um, then, you, then you would start to see the anxiety, the chronic anxiety. And my physician friends who've, uh, whom I've spoken to say that a huge percentage of, of youngsters that they see come to them for stress. They come to them for anxiety-related issues. And most of it is induced by the environment, school and home, stuff going on at home, stuff going on at school. And so even things like, you know, drug taking, it's really an attempt very often to get out of that running away or, tr or having to fight. Because when your body is chronically in that state, you need something to get you physically out of it. You can't physically sustain it. it it's not possible. And um, hence breakdowns and all kinds of things and kids desperate for just a pill to make it go away or, you know, give me some drugs to take this, to take me out of this state of panic, really. Panic so, and anxiety is on yeah. the increase and we yeah. know that. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about anxiety there. Yeah. Um, if there is something that is going to trigger anxiety in a teenager or child or even an adult for that matter, yeah. How can, how can you avoid a severe response, flight or flight, fight or flight response to the point where it is unhealthy, an unhealthy response? Yeah, that's a, that's a very important question that actually goes way back into childhood, even into the womb, because that whether you are an overactive person reacting to stress by having a panic attack or whether you cruise through life like, you know, nothing can touch you, is actually set up, it's written into neural circuitry very early on. It really pays in the long term to not freak out your youngest children and to not put them in stressful situations because the nervous system evolves out of how, how the neural networks are created. So whether you react to somebody saying, oh, you're an idiot, or whether you just go, oh, I don't care about that, is, is really how you, how you are made up. And research shows that even as early as, well, back in generations, that might have been set up. So you might be a parent who just has a very anxious child. You have to really protect those children. You have to nurture them. You have to comfort them, not overreact to them, because over time you can diminish that overactive response to stress just by you not being stressed as a parent or teacher. And why I say these things are important is because for, um, I think it was, the University of Texas recently did some studies with rats 
and exposed rats to the smell of cherry blossom and then gave them horrible electric shocks. Anyway, those rats obviously had a stressful reaction to the smell of cherry blossom even without the shock. But then two generations later, rats were still having from the same, uh, you know, the stressed out mother, were having the same stress reaction to the smell of cherry blossom without any shocks, without even knowing that it was connected to a shock. So our kids carry, carry a kind of blueprint that you can undo, you can work with that, but that's why we have post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not just in your head, it's written into your neural circuitry and the way you respond to the world. So if you've been in a war, then the sound of thunder would, will, might trigger a reaction as if you're in a war. And the same with kids, if there's some sort of traumatic uh, event that has made their stress response overactive, they will react to every little thing. So our best protection to our kids is for us not to overreact and to really try to keep our youngest children out of stressful situations because I know it's a tough world and you will confront stress and you know a lot of parents say well sooner or later they've got to get used to it but the research shows that the later you get used to it the better so you don't you know expose your kids to everything that's on TV and on the news and you know and all your fights and all your arguments and all your worries about money you really try to protect them from that because then they will be more resilient and if you've been doing that and and you're just hearing this right now it's okay forgive yourself for everything and just start a new page tomorrow so I'm not going to talk about all the financial troubles in front of my eight-year-old because she's gonna start feeling like you know survival how do I survive how do I make things okay I think mm. that's one of the most important things we can think about is yeah, yes. doing that. Let's, let's also talk now and finish today on teenagers um, some of the anxiety that I notice as a teacher uh, comes from relationships, um, teenage relationships. How can teenagers best deal with uh, anxiety with relationships? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think as teachers we're in a really important role in a school because not only can we model what warm and, um, and accepting and inclusive relationships look like, but we can have discussions with our teenagers, I think the best thing for teenagers is to talk about everything, to really give them the tools like, you know, what happened? If you ask them what happened today and they don't want to tell you, honor that because sometimes there's a private realm where you, we really don't belong as they're trying to find themselves. But every opportunity that we get to have discussions about, well, what's going on with that thing in politics or what's going on with those people over there? We're actually modeling discussion and reflection on behavior and so they might go, oh yeah, I think that person's doing that because, you know, maybe they were bullied and maybe they just, you know, we, we make our kids socially and emotionally literate by engaging with them at every possible opportunity, like on the drive to school, you know, hey, you know what I saw yesterday and you tell them a story about something that happened or, um, you know, we had this argument the other day, I just want to talk to you about that, I'm sorry that I said some of those things, I really hurt you. And so we help them to become literate in the way that they can read people and go, well, maybe I'm not going to be engaged by that person who keeps posting all that rubbish about me on Facebook. I think that openness of discussion and support can help kids feel so much more okay about the weird things that do happen and the weird behaviors that will surround them for sure. Yeah. Um, teenagers are, are very uh, difficult when it comes to sleep. 
sleep is very important for teenagers, as we know. And I know that you have quite a background in understanding sleep. Can you just finish today by telling us the importance of sleep and what really is going on for teenagers? Right. So one of the stressful situations is in the morning, you're trying to get your teenager up to go to school and they won't get out of the bed and they can't get out of the bed. And so you think, oh, they've just become incredibly lazy and they are just trying to irk me by doing this. But in reality, this is not the case. And research that came out a couple of years ago that's been done extensively over, over the last decade shows that when teenagers hit puberty around then, melatonin, which is what, um, what helps you sleep, actually kicks you into that sleepy zone, starts, starts being secreted much later. So whereas it might have started at 7 or 8 p.m., it starts more like 9, 10 p.m. And so teenagers are only getting sleepy maybe around midnight. And then by the time it's time to wake up in the morning, they are into the deepest part of their sleep and that is physiological. And so it's a huge struggle and a stressor when we try to rip them out of bed at like six or seven in the morning where they have to catch the bus and they will be grumpy and they will say horrible things to you sometimes and they will say, leave me alone, I don't wanna to go to school and all of that. But if we understand what's actually happening to their bodies, we can also react a little bit gentler. There are some schools in the States, in America, which after this research actually moved their start time forward, made it later, so that teenagers could, those of them who were having issues with their melatonin could, you know, come in later, and that made a lot of sense. So, so much for being bright and early in the morning. Our teenagers, not only do they need their sleep, but for them sometimes it's very hard to get up in the morning, and not because they're lazy or they're trying to annoy us. Why did the uh, body evolve that way? Why <laughs> evolutionary? Why would, why would we want teenagers to... Uh be like that. Yeah, why would we? That's a question that I can't answer, <laughs> but I think it's worth pondering, isn't it? Do when we just need to give them a different, we need to give them a different universe for about five years and then maybe it'll be okay. Actually, that was my next question. When does it actually start to um, sort of become earlier again? You know, general bedtime around nine or 10? Yeah, you know? adulthood. And it varies mm. for each person, just as we develop so differently as people, you know, puberty hits some at 10 and some at 16. So when you're, when you start wanting to rise early again you might be 19 or you might be 25 I know for my son it never really happened to him he was always an early riser but around about age 17 or 18 um, I think that's when he started to get really sleepy in the morning but luckily school was nearly over by then well um, Shelley it's been great chatting to you thank you so much for the interview today thank you Tracy it was a pleasure And I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Shelley Davido. For more information about Dr. Davido's research, visit the University of the Sunshine Coast's website. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.